The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. Skin care and plastic surgery are hot topics these days. Let Dr. Rubenstein answer your questions and explain what you want to look for in aesthetic products and cosmetic procedures. Get ready for a discussion about all things aesthetic. Now, live from Miami, Florida, American Board Certified Plastic Surgeon, Dr. Adam Rubenstein. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Reflections. This week's show is uh, is an interesting one. It's called Going Up. It's about breastless and augmentation. So we now are getting into the third show in the series that we were doing for Mother's Day. We did a show on Mother's Day about uh, tummy tucks and breast surgery, and then we followed up last week with a show on tummy tucks. This week we're going to be talking about breast surgery, in particular lifting the breast and augmenting. And, of course, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Cherie Wagner. Hello, good morning, good, good afternoon. Morning. Good afternoon. <laughs> yeah, depending upon where you are, either way. Uh, either way. We have two great guests today. Today we've got Dennis Hammond coming on the show. Dennis is a, an expert in breast surgery. He has popularized a technique and actually described the technique for doing a breast lift, actually a breast reduction, which then can be used as a breast lift as well, uh, with a scar that only goes around the areola. Now, we'll talk about why that's revolutionary. We also have a Dr. Anu Bajaj, who's coming on the show to join us and talk about breast surgery. Uh, Dr. Bajaj has a lot of experience with breast reconstruction patients as well as cosmetic breast surgery, and she'll bring her perspective onto the show and tell us how she views breast lifts and augmentations. To start off with, let's talk a little bit about uh, breast augmentation and mastopexy. Mastopexy is the medical term for a breast lift. And we're going to be talking about doing the two of those together. The American Society for Plastic Surgeons did a study. And in their study, they found that if cost was not important, then 62% of women would go on to have some form of an operation after pregnancy, after having babies. This was something we talked about in the Mommy Makeover Show. When we look at the statistics from 2010, there are almost 300,000 breast augmentations done. There were also 100,000 breast lifts done. And in many of those cases, those operations were done together. And there's lots of reasons to do breast lifts and to do breast augmentation. And then there's a, a pretty common scenario where we do both of them together. Now, the typical changes that we see in a breast will be loss of volume. Of course, as you get older, the breast will atrophy or shrink away. And there will also be... Uh, times when you'll lose weight, and then if you take pregnancy into account, well, when you have babies, your breasts will swell, and then they'll reduce back down. A lot of times they reduce back down to less than they were before you had babies. So all of those reasons may lead to losses of volume. And when you lose volume, you're probably going to want to replace the volume. Replacing the volume generally means 
putting in a breast implant. Now, along with that loss of volume, frequently comes sagging of the breast. And here, again, we're talking about someone who's gained a lot of weight and lost it. Well, the breast has been larger as you lose that weight. Some of the weight comes off the breast, and the breast shrinks a little bit. It doesn't have the same fullness, and because it was much larger at one time, as you lose the volume, it begins to sag a little bit. Same thing is true with pregnancy, even more so because in pregnancy, over a fairly short period of time, just a few months, the breasts are going to swell significantly as the breast glands get bigger and prepare for having the baby and breastfeeding. And then if you go on to breastfeed, that keeps it that way for a while. And then once you're done with everything, they go down. And again, that skin has been stretched and been stretched more rapidly than most people do with gaining a weight. So you see even more sagging. Uh, sagging would be more common in women that have had babies and particularly women who have breastfed. And then, of course, there's a set of patients we haven't really talked about. Breast cancer is shockingly prevalent in this country. Approximately one in seven women may go on to have breast cancer in their lifetime. And there's a large number of women, unfortunately, that have dealt with breast cancer. A lot of times, probably the majority of times, it's only on one side. And so women will go on to have a breast reconstruction on the one side where possibly they've had a mastectomy because of the cancer. Where the breast has been removed. When you do a reconstruction on that one side, it's going to require, for the best result, something to make the other breast look similar. And in many cases, we will be talking about doing a mastopexy or a breast lift, uh, frequently putting an implant in or doing augmentation. These can are you, the, can you do that at the same time? Yeah, well, that's exactly what we're talking about. Okay. Oh, you're talking oh, you mean with the cancer. Yeah, with the uh, cancer, yes. Typically, you sequence these things, and that, that brings us to an important point. You know, we're talking about breastless and augmentations, and we're talking about doing them together, and there's a lot of doctors, that's what I thought you were asking, there are a lot of doctors that will stage those two procedures, where they'll do either the breast lift or the augmentation first, and then come back at a second time and do the uh, other operation, whichever they didn't do the first time. In my opinion, and we're going to ask our experts later on, in my opinion, I think you have the best opportunity to achieve the best results by doing them together at the same time because you have okay. control of all the elements. Now, when you're talking about cancer, that's a different thing. When you're talking about a mastectomy, there's a lot that goes into breast reconstruction. And breast reconstruction has many stages in itself in many cases. You probably don't want to do what we call a symmetry procedure or you know, doing the other side, the non-cancerous side, the normal side, you don't want to make that try to look like the reconstructed breast until you're completely done reconstructing the breast. So in the cases where you're doing it for cancer reasons, you want to make sure that that reconstructed breast is as good as it can be. And typically that could be two, three procedures before you get it more or less where you really want to have it. And at that point, then you can consider or should consider doing the symmetry procedure now, you don't have to. You don't have to even have the breast reconstruction, for that matter. But if you're going to try and get the best symmetry, in, in my opinion, I think you're better off trying to do it at the uh, at the time when the reconstructed breast is as good as it can get. Uh, what about insurance? Now, I know on cancer patients, uh, a lot of the girls um, that have gone through it have had their insurance companies pay for this because it is uh, cancer. Are you able to choose a plastic surgeon in that 
situation or well, does the insurance company um, choose a general surgeon for that? That well, there's two questions there. So let's talk about insurance coverage. Insurance mm-hmm. coverage for a mastectomy is, is always there. They will always cover a mastectomy being done for cancer. It's obviously a health-related issue. But what becomes controversial is what happens to the normal side. And many insurance companies do cover the uh, reconstruction or the, the symmetry procedure on the normal side. Some don't. Some say, well, look, you know, you, you are missing a breast. We reconstructed the breast. You have a breast on the other side, and anything you do to that is considered cosmetic, so it's not covered. That's really not a fair policy for women. Because, not at all. You know, it's, it's not quite the same as other structures on both sides. You know, it, it's, uh, it, it's, there's really no comparison here. And they're a paired structure right next to each other. It's sort of a, a normal thing uh, to have them be similar in, in size and shape. And when you have a mastectomy and you're removing a breast and trying to do a reconstruction, what you end up with with the reconstruction sometimes can look a lot like the other side, but in many cases it won't. It depends on where you start. If you do have um, a general surgeon that is doing it for insurance purposes and uh, you wanted to have your plastic surgeon come in there to sew it up to make the scarring and and you know the aesthetic part of it look as nice as you can. Do you work along with those general surgeons? Do plastic surgeons typically work alongside, sure. or is that? Yeah. No, I'm sure it's done all, all the time, all the time. The uh, that that's sort of in the early stages. One day we'll do a show on breast reconstruction, and we can talk about all these things. And man, there's a lot to talk about in breast reconstruction. It's a really big, big topic. But uh, to answer that question, the plastic surgeon frequently is involved in the mastectomy in planning of things because where those incisions are made and how that operation is done is going to have an effect on how the reconstruction is going to be done. In fact, there are some techniques for doing an immediate reconstruction. So a woman can go in to have their mastectomy and have the plastic surgeon there doing the reconstruction the same day. So when you are done and you come out of the operating room, you've already completed your first stage of breast reconstruction along with having your mastectomy. And that's a nice way to go if if you unfortunately ever have to have a mastectomy. If you are going to have a reconstruction, if it's appropriate for the type of cancer that you have, it's best, in my opinion, to go ahead and have the immediate reconstruction when when possible, there's there's so many things to talk about. We can't really cover it on on the show today. We will do a show on uh, breast cancer and breast reconstruction coming up in the future. At least you do have those options, though, because it's already an emotional uh, situation for a woman to go through that and then be able to have your plastic surgeon make it as aesthetically beautiful as you can is a great option. Yeah, sure. So I think it's always I, I a good idea that's... to keep a plastic surgeon in mind when you're doing that stuff. Yes. Uh, and now in terms of choosing your surgeon, you know, mastopexy augmentation or breast lift and augmentation is generally a cosmetic or aesthetic procedure. When it's being done in combination with a reconstructed breast, it is arguably not purely an aesthetic procedure. It's something done for symmetry and to approximate a normal appearance and in some cases, that will be covered in insurance. And, and you brought up the question of whether or not you get to choose your plastic surgeon. That entirely depends on your plan. Uh, okay. If you have, uh, you, there's going to be a list of doctors that are on the plan. You can choose from that list if you have people that are in network. 
a lot of times you'd like to use someone that's out of the network, and uh, that's something that certainly can be done depending upon your plans. It depends on if you, if anyone's listening is thinking about doing that, just check into your plan. Right now, I want to uh, introduce our first guest. We have Dr. Demis Hammond. Uh, Dr. Dr. Hammond is calling in to help us talk about mastopexy augmentation. He's a board-certified plastic surgeon and practices in Michigan. He's world-renowned for his spare technique, which is a technique for doing a breast reduction with a scar that only goes around the areola. Dr. Hammond, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, it's a great it's great to have you on the show, and um, I'm really excited for you to share your perspective and your technique, describing and talking about your technique with my listeners. We're talking about mastopexy augmentation today, and this is a follow-up show to a show we did a couple weeks ago on mommy makeovers. Of course, uh, a mastopexy augmentation, a breast lift with implants, is frequently part of one of those mommy makeovers. Now, how many of your patients, when you're seeing patients for a breast lift and augmentation, how many patients do you see you think are moms that have had kids and are coming for a, a rejuvenation of their post-baby breasts? And how many of them you think are just uh, women that have, have aged a little and, and seen changes? Well, I think both, but you're exactly right. You hit the nail right on the head uh, as we age, and particularly after we undergo the ravages of uh, childbirth. Uh, our bodies change, and as that skin is stretched when the, the breasts get larger, of course, after the baby's born and then when they shrink again um, after a while, um, the changes remain, and uh, those changes can be permanent, and, uh, and that's exactly why you need to certainly try to combine a lift with perhaps even the addition of a little volume in the form of a breast implant. Now, what percentage do you think, what kind of profile do you see in your practice? How many women are coming in after babies, and how many you think are just aging? Oh, uh, I, at least where I live here, a lot of that is related to uh, to having children. Um, and I will say this, though, of uh, the patients that come in just with natural aging, a lot of times you can perform just the lift in those kind of patients because they do have adequate volume to their breast. It's just misplaced. Sure, uh, sure. I think that can that can also be true for women that have had babies. You know, one that's a good point to make is that everyone is different. And I know in your practice, in my practice, in most people's offices, you were looking at patients individually. Every time someone comes in, you're looking to see what their body type is like, what their breast type is like, how much breast tissue do they have, what's the skin like, what is the positioning of the nipple in terms of sagging, what's the size of the nipple. All of that comes into play. So that's a good way to first to begin talking about choosing a procedure. What's your thought process? Because I know in your practice, in your hands, which are very skilled, you have fantastic technique to use just uh, an incision, a circumareolar incision, which leaves a scar only around the areola. And, of course, there are the other techniques using a vertical approach where it looks like a lollipop. And then the more old-fashioned version, which is an inverted T or, or an anchor-shaped incision. What's your thought process when you're looking at someone so that we, our listeners can look at themselves in the mirror and, and take a look and say, gee, I wonder if that could be used for me? How do you choose your procedure? Well, you know, it's really great that you, you you mentioned that because when you go back to the old days, as it were, when all we had was that very extensive scar technique that would go around the, the areola or the dark part of the breast uh, around the nipple, then down, and then there's another scar that would go all the way under the breast from the inner part by the sternum all the way almost under the arm. Uh, that is way too much scar to consider in a, any kind of a cosmetic situation. That was more of a breast reduction or even a reconstructive type of a scar. 
once we began to develop the, the shorter scars, the one that just goes around the areola and then down to the inframammary fold, and as you mentioned, that's pretty much what the spare procedure is, now we have a whole new type of patient that we could treat successfully, and that is exactly the type of patient you're talking about, the mommy makeover, or another group, the patients that have lost a lot of weight, the massive weight loss patients, so to speak. In addition to that, just the average aging type of patient. All of those are now, uh, that this type of procedure is opened up to them because the scar is now acceptable. And so we'll just take the breast and we'll just tighten the skin just by pinching it together with our fingers and lift it up and show the patient, this is what you would look like if we were just reposition everything north. Is that good enough for you? Is that what that's, you're That's interesting. For? You know, I, I do a similar thing and uh, I guess that's, I think probably manipulating the tissue, just kind of grabbing and touching the skin and moving things around manually in the in the consultation is a good way to get some sense for whether or not a particular technique is going to work. You know, I'll frequently cinch everything in like a purse string technique and take a look and see how that makes the breast look. And, and that's a good way to decide whether or not you're going to be able to achieve yeah. what you want. But as yeah. a patient, you're sitting there going, oh, my gosh, what do you mean you're going to take my nipple off and then ah, pick on? A, I'm a, sorry, a, that <laughs> sounds pretty intimidating. It might be okay for you doctors thinking it's so simple. But well, as a, a lady a physician there, that's scary. That right, is that, scary. But that's a common misconception. A, a lot of patients, probably more than not, think that we take the nipple off when we do these operations. Right. In so fact, my, my own wife uh, make, <laughs> often makes jokes about that. No, the, the truth is the nipple, it, it, would, that, that is, it is true that there is a very, very old technique for breast reduction that has people do that. But in all modern techniques, with the exception of really big breasts that you're reducing, in anything we're talking about today, that nipple stays attached. We want it to stay attached. You never oh, gosh. Cause that's yeah. No, no, that, that nipple sitting. never comes off hardly. Uh, I, I don't do it in my practice. Matter of fact, you can perform these procedures and in the vast majority of cases preserve the nipple sensation uh, oh, yeah. even though you're repositioning everything north. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Good. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's a real common misconception. A lot of people think <laughs> that's the case. That's what I thought. I thought that my nipple is going to be sitting on the table and everybody's <laughs> staring at it. <laughs> my wife always jokes we take it off and put it in a Petri dish. But, right? Uh, that's scary. <laughs> and are you getting your nipple pack, you know, your same nipple? I mean, that's just scary to me. Yeah. Well, now you know. And now you can you can sleep well knowing that it would never be your body. <laughs> we're going to take a short break at this point. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Dennis Hammond about breastless and augmentations. Join us in just a few minutes after this short break live on New Reflection. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. Cosmetic surgery is a big deal. Make sure you do your homework. Why? This is not my car I'm working on. I may settle for an okay job on that, but I won't settle for anything less when it comes to my body. Do your homework. My doctor trained with world-renowned plastic surgeons. My doctor is a fully board-certified plastic surgeon. My doctor is an MD and on staff at several Florida hospitals. My doctor is an associate professor of surgery at a major university. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. 
People pick a doctor based on trust. You can trust Dr. Rubenstein. He has the experience, knowledge, and artistic touch you're looking for. Call 305-792-7575. That's 305-792-7575. Call today for a free consultation. Dr. Adam Rubenstein, Turnberry Plastic Surgery at Biscayne Boulevard in the William Lehman Causeway, where medicine meets artistry. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. Are you ready to grow your business? Listen for the Independent Business Owner Show with your coach, Rick Corrado. This entertaining talk radio program will bring you the tools to help increase your business. You'll learn sales success, time management, lead generation, business development, life balance, and much more. Rick Corrado is here to help you take your business to the next level. Listen for the Independent Business Owner Show, heard live every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. If you have a question or comment for the host or this week's guests, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You can also send an email to info at dr-rubenstein.com. That's info at dr-rubenstein.com. Now, back to New Reflections. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dr. Adam Rubenstein. I'm here with my co-host, Cherie Wagner, and Dr. Dennis Hammond. We were just talking about mastopexy augmentation, and particularly we were talking about the nipples, and we learned an important thing, that we do not remove the nipples from your breast when we do this procedure. In fact, just, <laughs> <Thank> about, <God. laughs> just about every procedure that's done these days uh, in anyone's office would always keep the nipple attached. Now, another question came up. We were talking during the break about sensation of the nipple. And uh, I think it's true to say that the vast majority of women having any of these procedures will keep exactly the same sensation that they had before surgery. How do you counsel your patients about that, Dr. Hammond? Well, you're, you're right. It's a very important issue that it should be discussed ahead of time um, because, quite frankly, there are some people could care less about whether or not their nipple is sensate. And then on the other end of the spectrum, it's mortally uh, important uh, to some folks. Um, and I'd say that uh, fully uh, 90% of people are going to be able to retain the sensation to the nipple. In some cases, it can even be more sensitive in a, a few few types of cases. Um, but there is a chance, when, uh, particularly when you're making a pocket to put a breast implant in, that you can diminish or even completely lose the sensation to the nipple. But that's the, very much the minority of patients. Yeah, I think it's pretty uncommon, but it does happen. Now, in terms of losing sensation, as patients often wonder about this, you're well known for limiting scars and trying to do circumareolar techniques, just, just with that circular scar. People worry if you're making an incision all the way around the nipple, aren't you going to be decreasing sensation? You know, the average patient looking at the operation says, well, gee, that's probably going to cut off all my sensation. And, and that's not really the case. Can you explain to the listeners why that doesn't happen? Oh, absolutely. You know, that's, that's why we went to medical school is to study anatomy. And once you understand <laughs> the anatomy, you understand where the nerves come from, they actually come, um, 
uh, from your spinal cord and they travel around with the ribs and they pop up through the breast. So they come up from underneath. They don't come in more or less through the skin where you make your incisions. So as long as you keep those nerves intact deeply, you should not alter the sensation really much at all. And that's the main reason, well, one of the main reasons why we want to keep the nipple attached at all times during our surgery. Uh, the other main reason is you want to have good blood supply to it, and that's one of the things that people worry about is, you know, is my nipple going to fall off after surgery? And that partly stems from the idea that maybe we're cutting it off and sewing it back on. It also is not an unreasonable thought when you think about the blood supply to the nipple, if it's got an incision that goes all the way around it, where's the blood coming from to keep it alive? And well, it's the same sort of thing as the nerve. It's coming from the actual breast tissue, giving some good blood supply and nerve endings up into the nipple itself. Uh, it's right, exactly. It's the, the, the nerves mimic or they follow along with the arteries and the veins. Uh, and so by uh, keeping all of those attachments intact, that's when you can start to manipulate the breast and surgically alter it to improve its appearance. And, you know, I'll just say another thing, and this is why you really need to have some people that are trained uh, in these types of procedures to do them safely. Um, I hear these horror stories, I, I just can't believe it, of uh, even dentists trying to do breast augmentations out in California. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, right here in my town, we have some, uh, some poorly trained people from quasi-specialties as a cardiologist doing breast augmentations, it just scares the heck out of me, because you've got to be familiar with the anatomy, you have to be familiar and trained how you can manipulate these tissues safely um, to achieve an aesthetic result, but without any complications and, and God forbid, loss of a nipple. Well, not God forbid, loss of a life. You know, there's a lot of people, in the case of a, of a cardiologist doing breast augmentation, that's just crazy, but it's not even as crazy as people who aren't even necessarily trained or licensed as physicians doing these procedures. You know, we did a show uh, not that long ago on plastic surgery disasters, speaking about all these type of things, people that went out of the country, people that tried to save money, people that went to perhaps a less reputable facility. Uh, all those things are, are, are things to avoid, and we talk about that all the time on the show. If you're going to have this stuff done, you ought to be seeking the care of a properly trained, board-certified plastic surgeon, someone who's certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery. And then you know you're at least in safe, ethical hands. Uh, of course. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Well, in looking at the patients, we were talking about kind of pulling the tissue around, squeezing things together, and seeing which technique you're going to use. How often do you think about using an implant versus not? You mentioned not using an implant. And I know that it, the majority of cases, at least in my practice, I have a conversation where we're using, if we're looking, thinking about doing a breast lift, I probably do 90 plus percent of my breast lifts, including at least a small implant. What have you seen? No, I would say that my experience mimics what you just said. Basically, we work down as, as plastic surgeons, we talk about our, our reconstructive ladder, uh, where you work from simple to complex. And the simplest procedure is to just do the lift all by itself, just tightening up the skin, lifting the nipple and areola with just an incision around the areola itself. Next step down that ladder would be to incorporate all of that skin tightening with some internal suturing of the breast to lift it and to shift everything north. And then one step down from that, even perhaps more complicated, the most complicated type of procedure you can use is to do all this skin lifting with an implant. And, and as you know, and there are some plastic surgeons around the country that suggest 
you should do those two procedures in a staged fashion. In other right. words, do the lift first and then come back later and put the implant in. I prefer to do both of those together, and we can do them very successfully together. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but it is most people that end up needing that skin lift with a small implant to achieve the best result that you can. Yeah, I agree with you. The only time that I really do uh, a staged approach is at the patient's request. And I, I, just yesterday I had someone in the office, we were looking at this, and, and I used this as a as kind of a bridge procedure to let them see what it's going to look like. So every now and then someone will come to the office and they'll have a little bit of sagging, enough that I know chances are they're probably going to want to have a lift for the very best looking result, but they really want to try and avoid the scarring. And if I think that we can get a reasonably good looking result with just an augmentation, that's how we start. With the understanding that you can always come back and do a small lift later on, fairly straightforward procedure, and, and not really have them walking around with a, a really undesirable result in the interim. But in cases where I can look at someone and say, you know, you really need a lift, more often than not, I'm just counseling them to say, look, you're not going to be happy with the, the augmentation alone, but uh, you would be very happy with a lift and an augmentation. So I think that's what we need to plan. And in those cases, I probably would refuse to do just an augmentation. What are your thoughts on staging it when you're giving someone a little time to decide? I agree with you completely. It's not an all-or-none phenomenon. There are shades of gray to breast sagginess, so to speak. And there are those people because we know that as we put an implant under the breast, it tends to lift the position of the nipple and areola just a bit. And there are those patients that are sort of in that in-between zone that you're not quite sure if they're going to need a lift, but you'd really like to avoid putting the extra scars on the breast if you can. And that's where you really have to have a trusting relationship with your plastic surgeon. And I agree with you completely. If I'm working really well with the patient, I'll say, listen, let's just try the implant because we're not quite sure how much it's going to lift the nipple and areola. We'll do it. We'll look at it. And if you and I decide, you know, it just didn't lift it as much as we thought, well, you know what, then we can add the scars for the mastopexy, and you know that we at least tried. That is an extremely healthy approach, I think, um, and where a surgeon and a doctor can work together to try to achieve the best result possible. Yeah, I think it's, it's good to have your patient active in that decision, and there are times when, when my patients will prefer that I make the decision for them because at the time we're doing surgery, and the, the flip side of that is they don't really want to have to go and have another procedure. Even if it can be done under local anesthesia, they just want to have one process and be done. So in some cases, they put the ball in my court, and we have extensive discussions about what the end result that we're shooting for needs to look like, and I have a good understanding of what their goal is. And then on the, on the table, when we're doing the procedure, I can get my, I use sizers, by the way, sizer implants, temporary implants that help me judge the size of the breast that we're trying to achieve before I commit to the final implant. Right, and I think I think sizers are a terrific tool, and I'll go ahead and put the sizers in and play with the volume and the positioning of them to see the best that I can make things look. And if I feel like it's going to be acceptable without having to do the lift, then I make that decision for them if they've told me that that's what they prefer me to do. And then in many cases, they'll say, look, I'd rather not have the lift, but if you think it's not going to look right, just go ahead and do it. And we've already planned in advance to, to do the lift if necessary. And if I think that that's what's necessary, then that's what we end up doing. What and and that's get... a terrific approach. And the good news is for those sort of marginal patients where there's a little bit of uncertainty, you can usually achieve the result you want just with the periareolar incision. You don't need oh, to yeah, put the sure, incision sure. going down the front. 
And so what I'll do, uh, very similar to you, is the incision that I'll use is the inferior periareolar incision or the incision that goes along the bottom of the areola. We'll go through there, make our pocket, get our implant in, and then if we decide that, oops, you know what, it looks like they actually do need the lift, it's a very simple matter to just continue that all the way around, and they really don't get that much extra scar. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Way to go. Cherie, you had a you had a question. Yeah, I wanted to know when you guys are giving these um, lifts and adding volume, is there going to be added cleavage in that process, or is that a separate um, surgery that you need to add more cleavage? What if you have the volume and you're getting the lift, and now you just want more cleavage? Oh, it's going to be inherent, I think. Whenever you add an an implant to the breast, you're going to uh, create more cleavage. You're going to uh, bring the breasts a little bit closer together. Now, having said that, it's very anatomical. Um, as, As I've examined thousands of patients over the years, there are some women whose breasts come very close together in the midline over the sternum, and there are some women whose breasts are really just naturally quite far apart. And the message I would send, send is that you need to respect that anatomy. So if you try to create cleavage in a woman who just wasn't destined to have it, you can actually create problems. You can create visible implants and wrinkles. Yeah, um, you've got to, you can't get too erosions cute. Through the have skin. you heard? Have you heard of this procedure? Because I had a girlfriend of mine from here in South Florida fly all the way to Atlanta, Georgia for this particular uh, surgeon to do this. They put staples on the um, underneath the armpits in that area. They stapled it to give her more cleavage so that she didn't have such a separation. What are your thoughts on that? Gee, I'm not sure what procedure you're talking about as far as that goes. They stapled it. She said that they put staples inside to push her cleavage together and give her more cleavage. she She had implants? Yeah, she had implants, okay, yeah. but then went back and had what, staples. What, right, but see, what, what they're talking about is really it was what Dr. Hammond is advising people not to do. Okay. You don't want to get too cute with the position of implants. Implants need to be centered on the nipple of the breast. It needs to be right smack in the middle of the breast. And what people will do is what Dr. Hammond was, was kind of talking about, and what you're talking about that your friend probably had done, is uh-huh. push the implant position too close to the middle of the chest so that it, it will give you more cleavage, but you're going to have a bulge that isn't centered on your nipple. So now the, the nipple itself is going to look like it's too far to the outside of the breast, which is not an attractive result. So what do you say to a woman that comes in there and says, you know, my, I want more cleavage after she's already had the implants and it's not enough? What do you tell them? Well, you know, I, that's, the, a, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because it comes down to patient safety. If you try to create cleavage in a, a woman who just isn't set up anatomically to have it, you'll create problems. Just as Adam just said, you'll end up with an implant which is malpositioned towards the inner aspect of the chest, and the nipple will end up hanging off the outer aspect, and it looks Ooh. just terrible. And yeah, that's set not up for the need for reoperations and all kinds of potential complications. Yeah, I see um, a good amount of secondary breast surgery, and not uncommonly someone comes in with an implant that was pushed into the wrong position to try and correct or to try and create a look that they wanted that they just probably shouldn't have tried to get anatomically. If they want that kind of cleavage, then they need to wear tighter bras. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And and listen, ladies, that's exactly what Victoria's secret is. Listen. No, listen, doctor. No, no, no. 
No, I have to disagree. No, no, no. Listen, women that are coming in there, most of them want to be able to go braless once in a while. So I have to Especially down here. Down here in Miami. Especially in South Florida. So I disagree with both of you. Uh, But uh, unfortunately, (laughs) you're going to have to take it up with God because we didn't create (laughs) There you go. This is a great (laughs) option. (laughs) You know what? Just to follow up on that point real quick. Sure. And, And this is a little bit of what I call the Michael Jackson syndrome. We have to know when to stop. Absolutely. He was a handsome, attractive young man, and he just went too far with his nose operations. We do the same thing with all types of procedures. You have to know when to tell a patient, this is not a good idea. You're not set up anatomically to have this done. Accept what you have and move on. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's safe advice. Point. We're going to take a, we're going to take a short break here. When we come back, we're going to introduce Dr. Anu Bajaj, another uh, board certified plastic surgeon, and we'll continue our discussion about mastopexy augmentation or breast lifts with implants. When we come back after this short break on new reflections. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Do you know if kidney disease is affecting you? Are your kidneys healthy? You may have kidney disease and not even be aware of it. 26 million people have been affected by kidney disease. Teenagers today are being diagnosed with symptoms such as high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. These conditions can worsen kidney health and cause kidney disease. Be sure to tune in to improve your kidney health with your host, Dr. Rich Snyder, every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The information you get on this program could help save your life. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. If you have a question or comment for the host or this week's guests, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You can also send an email to info at dr-rubenstein.com. That's info at dr-rubenstein.com. Now, back to New Reflections. Welcome back to the show. We're talking about breast lifts and augmentations, and we've been speaking with Dr. Dennis Hammond. Now I'd like to introduce Dr. Anu Bajaj, who is practicing in Oklahoma City. She's a board-certified plastic surgeon with extensive experience in reconstructive and cosmetic breast surgery. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam. It's great to have you on. We've been talking all about different things having to do with breast lifts and augmentations. The one thing we really didn't get to that you probably have a lot of experience with is dealing with symmetry procedures. When someone comes and has a mastopexy, has to have their breasts removed for cancer purposes on one side, how is that different 
in what you're trying to achieve from someone who just comes and wants a breast lift and augmentation for purely cosmetic reasons? Well, once you're dealing with a reconstructive patient, they've, they've had a mastectomy and have had tissue removed from one breast. And what makes it really difficult to achieve symmetry when you're doing a lift and an augmentation in their, natu- in their remaining breast is it's really hard to achieve the same type of projection in their reconstructive breast. And so to me, that's one of the most challenging aspects in a symmetry procedure. But, you know, the whole point of the symmetry procedures is breasts come in pairs, and we like them both to look and be as close to the identical size, to the same size as possible so we can wear our bathing suits and our tank tops and halters. Right, and that's the thing. We were talking about at the top of the show uh, how certain insurance companies will consider a symmetry procedure to be aesthetic and not want to cover it, but the fact is, it has significant functional impact. You know, someone who's had a mastectomy and had a reconstructed breast, sometimes it'll be really close and look great, but a lot of times they're going to look very different. And that it's not just a matter of how it looks. You can't wear the right bra size. Which breast are you going to fit into the bra? One or the other. You can't fit them both most of the time. And you can't wear things that would, would reveal that. You know, your bathing suit choices are limited. The, the, the types of tops that you wear can be limited. And that's the whole purpose for having a breast reconstruction in the first place is you don't have to wear padded bras and prosthetic things to make yourself look normal again. So really, and, I, I think we should all support the idea that insurance companies need to cover these symmetry procedures. Sherry, you have something to say? I, I agree because it's not only just um, on the outer what other people, if you've already had one removed and you already have that emotional detachment from something that's supposed to be so womanly, um, just looking at yourself in the mirror, I think that the insurance companies, that's an emotional thing as well as aesthetically, as well as, um, you know, not having the right bra and everything else. Sure. I mean, that's just I, I, that's an opinion. The psychology of it comes just well into exactly. play. Unfortunately, insurance companies don't see it that way. But then that's when you're true. looking... Now, right now, there is still the law in place which says that they do have to cover symmetry procedures, but things like um, policies like Medicaid or Medicare or some of the um, plans through the Indian Health Service are exempt from that law, and so they're the primary ones that will, that you have to fight with to try to get it approved. It's yeah, very it's, sad. It really is sad that women have to go through that. It really should not. It shouldn't even be a question. Exactly. I, now, the, the thing is, when you're looking at doing uh, a mastopexy augmentation with a patient that has a reconstructed breast, are you thinking about it differently, or is it pretty much the same thought process as you would with someone coming for an aesthetic procedure? Um, you think about it a little bit differently in the sense that um, you're trying, you've got a natural breast which has natural projection and the reconstructed breast never, very, it's very difficult to get the same degree of projection. So I think that makes it a little bit more challenging. But you still have to go through the same thought process to determine whether this patient just needs a small implant to help it achieve the same size or whether she needs a lift or where the position of the nipple is going to be. Well, on the reconstructed breast, you you create the nipple as well, but it's the same issue. The nipple has to be on the center of that reconstructed breast mound. Right, right. It sounds like more often than not, well, more, certainly more often than just for purely aesthetic purposes, you might get away with just doing a lift and not necessarily putting an implant in. 
Um, in my practice, I find that I more commonly put an implant in because if you've got an implant in for your reconstruction, it's easier to achieve that superior pole symmetry with an implant on the remaining breast as well. Right. Good point. You know, that's that's a, a very good point. We see that uh, the uh, when, when we see even asymmetry cases, this often comes up. Uh, we, what about we, the asymmetry? What about um, the volume of it? If one is heavier than the other, and this and the plastic surgeon suggests to just do a small mini lift, and then it rips it apart because now you've got a whole different mess. And I've had somebody, you know, that I know went through that as well with the symmetry situation. Yeah, well, asymmetry is they're very, not all very the difficult. same. You right. know, well, one in fact, I always tell way patients more than the other. I tell patients if you look at uh, Victoria's Secret models, there's always one side bigger than the other. I mean, everybody, no matter who they are, everyone has one side a little bit bigger than the other. There's never perfect symmetry in, in anything in your body, and, and certainly not in your breast. But when the asymmetry is really significant, it's a challenging thing to create perfect symmetry. In fact, I think it's, it's nearly impossible to get perfect symmetry. But you certainly can get things a lot closer and make it acceptable. Uh, so, you know, that, that's a whole other challenge, and we frequently will do lifts and augmentations uh, along with perhaps just an augmentation on the other side when we're dealing with asymmetries, depending upon how big a breast might be on one side compared to the other, how much sagging there is. So that's another consideration. I, I imagine it's a lot like dealing with the reconstructive patients. When now, you have... You were saying earlier um, that you have the ones that are temporary or something. You had uh, yeah, talked the about... Yeah, the sizes. We talked about... Yeah, when we did the show on uh, breast augmentation, we talked about that a lot. And I know, Dr. Hammond, uh, you said earlier that you also use sizers. Dr. Bajaj, do you use sizers in your surgery? Occasionally, not for every procedure, but I think in situations, particularly with reconstruction or asymmetry, they're a very, very useful tool. Yeah, I like using them. And the sizer that we're talking about, just to be clear, it's not, um, it's not a... Uh, a temporary implant that we leave in and then come back in another procedure and take out is all being used during the same procedure. So, so we, does that we cost? The, does it cost? No, no, it doesn't more? increase. No, it's just no. a tool for you guys to use. Yeah, it's just a choice okay. of the surgeon. Uh, and now, operative now, tool. So you have implants on their temporary sizers on, on your operating field. They're sterile that you, allow you to to uh, okay. determine the correct size. Right, that right. makes sense, yeah. Now, we're, we're talking, this this is actually in follow-up. This, this show is kind of following up on a mommy makeover show we did a couple weeks ago. So one thing we haven't talked about is consideration for uh, having a child and breastfeeding. What about waiting, Dr. Bajaj? How long do you like to have, make a patient wait before they can have a breast procedure after pregnancy and, and after breastfeeding? I usually say a minimum of six months after they've stopped breastfeeding. Okay. And uh, Dr. Hammond, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. You'd, you'd like things to, to reach a little bit more of a stable, stable point before you start trying to make some determinations with regards to volume or degree of lift of the breast. And so if, if a patient doesn't breastfeed and they just have the baby, would you make them wait six months after delivery? Yeah, six months. Yes, I would agree. That's agree. I guess I'm a little more liberal. I give them three months after pregnancy, uh, assuming that they can tell me that they feel like their breasts are more or less back to normal. And then if they've breastfed, then I like to wait three months after they stop breastfeeding. 
But if, you would, Which, if someone breastfeeds, would you guys make them wait six months after they stop breastfeeding? Yes. That's, you know, these are just, you know, suggestions. Uh, you can certainly vary one side or the other of, of those. You'd like them not to be actively leaking milk. Uh, oh, yeah, that's possible. for sure. Yeah, and that's an important point because anyone that's still lactating, there's there's significant amount of bacteria in milk, in uh, breast milk, that is not damaging to the baby when they when they have it, but it could be troublesome if it gets near the implant. So what if, that's why. What if you have a, um, a patient that already has implants, gets pregnant, and then what do you suggest for them to do after they're finished breastfeeding? Is it just usually a lift, or do you put brand new implants? What do you suggest? Uh, what you are know, you saying? You, you, typically, um, the volume will have taken care of itself with the implant, so that's set. So it's fairly easy to go ahead and just relift the soft tissue on top of the implant to achieve uh, really a nice result to correct some of the changes that occurred as a result of the breastfeeding. Would you change the implants and give and suggest giving new implants? Not unless there was some issue with regards to concerns over size. Okay. Yeah, and that's that's an important thing. There's a myth out there, this this uh, belief that you have to change your breast implants every 10 years like an oil change. And, you know, people will come in at 10 years after they've had a breast augmentation and say, well, it's time for me to get my implants changed out. And, you know, that was based upon a study that was done that showed that there's a, a 1% risk each year that adds up, you know, cumulative risk of the implants failing. So when you got into double digits and you got to 10 years, gee, wouldn't it be a good idea to come in and change your implants out? But at least in my practice, and I'd be curious to see what Dr. Bajaj and Dr. Hammond have to say about this, I tell my patients, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it looks good and it feels good, leave it alone. Certainly That's if exactly they break... exactly what I tell them. I say, if it ain't broke, no need to fix it. I would well, agree. I, I um, have a lot of people that have debates on silicone versus saline. If you have saline and now silicone came back in and it's, I, I believe, FDA approved now, would, and somebody says, not the 10 years, but they say, I want to change them into silicone because it's supposed to feel better. Do you suggest that or do you guys have any opinions? Well, I would say that uh, that's true. Uh, silicone does have a much more natural breast feel to me Um and so that would be one way you could go. There are other considerations. Uh, sometimes saline implants can be a little stand-upish, so to speak, and it can create a fairly artificial look to the breast. Uh, there are some women that want that. Um, silicone will rest a little bit more naturally with the soft tissues and create a bit more of a natural look. So it's, it's just one variable in an overall evaluation. Is one yeah, safer I... than the other? Oh no, uh, They're both really one. pretty safe. Yeah, the safety profile is pretty much the same, and, and I would I would agree entirely with Dr. Hammond. When I'm talking to a patient and they're asking, well, because you know, in my practice, very often they'll ask me, well, Doc, which one do you like better? Which one do you think is a better implant? And the truth is the implants are equally good, but I think that the I, I tend to put in probably 80, 85% of the time I'm using silicone implants because I do agree that I think they look and feel more natural. They flow more like a natural breast and they feel more like a natural breast. Now, they are more expensive, so if budget's a major concern, there's nothing wrong with using saline implants. And furthermore, uh, you know, we, we were talking about how they stand up more and that they're a little bit more firm, uh, which keeps their shape. You know, when I have someone that comes in and wants to have the quote-unquote done look, you know, they don't care people knowing that they have implants, they want that real round, perky look. 
that's a patient that I would probably choose a high-profile implant, and I might even counsel them to use saline over silicone because we're trying to keep that round, perky shape. Now, the flip side to that is there are patients that have a good amount of breast tissue, and today we're talking about mastopexy augmentations, lifts and augmentations, and if they have a reasonable amount of breast tissue already, and we're going to do a lift, then I don't think it matters quite as much which implant you use, because remember, you've got their muscle, their breast tissue, and their skin sitting on top of the implant. When someone comes to us that is really thin-breasted, and they don't have a lot of tissue, then the feel of the implant is very important, and I would recommend silicone. But when someone comes with a significant size breast already that just needs to be lifted and made more perky and they want to get them a little bit fuller, using a saline implant is, is hardly going to be a difference between saline and silicone in a lot of those patients. Dr. Bajaj, what do you think? I tend to agree. I tell when, you know, for if the more soft tissue coverage you have, the less important it is whether you have saline or silicone. For example, in my reconstructive patients, I almost exclusively use silicone. And for my cosmetic patients, I always give them the choice. And what I've noticed is when the implants were first approved in 2007, it was about 50% would opt for saline and 50% would opt for silicone. And now I increasingly see that the vast majority of my cosmetic patients would prefer the silicone because it is a more natural feel and look to it. But I do think if you're large-breasted, you know, in the long run, you probably won't notice much of a difference. Will one of them give you less rippling than the other? Yeah, there are. If you're a very thin woman with very little breast tissue or very little um, soft tissue coverage of the implant, most people would tell you that silicone will give you less rippling. I think that's probably true. Dr. Hammond, do you agree? Yeah, the the issue of rippling again is multifactorial. It depends on how how much soft tissue you have over the implant. Matter of fact, you could make the argument that almost every implant that's ever put in has ripples to a greater or lesser degree. Um, the thing with saline implants is you can overfill them slightly to work some of those ripples out. Um, so these are all considerations you have to take into account uh, when you're trying to counsel a patient as to which direction to go. Yeah, I think it's important. And anytime I use a saline implant, I'm always overfilling it. It's rare. I mean, I should never say always, but I, it, almost always. It's rare that I would fill an implant only up to its printed volume. I'm almost always putting a little bit extra stuff to fight that rippling. And one other thing I think we should mention since we came up with rippling, I use nearly exclusively smooth implants. But we should mention that the textured implants, with the implants that have a rough surface to the shell, they do have a little bit higher incidence of rippling because of the way that they adhere to the tissue in the pocket on the inside. As Dr. Hammond mentioned, all implants ripple. When they're sitting inside their pocket, they're not always perfectly smooth. There's always ripples to an implant. In fact, you take a silicone implant in your hand and you roll it around in your hand, you will see it create ripples as you move it around. So it's doing that inside the breast. The difference is when you have a textured implant, you see it pulling the skin and creating those ripples in the surface of the skin where the smooth ones tend to kind of roll in the pocket a little bit and slide so that it doesn't pull the skin down with it. So I think the more important than saline or silicone, although saline probably has a little bit more chance of rippling, is that there is a significant difference, I believe, between these, the textured implant versus the smooth implant. When you said overfilling them, do you suggest going with the smaller implant on the size when you're talking to a patient in their consultation? 
Well, that's more so of a you decision can? in the operating room. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't really, that, that's, you kind of decide that when you're doing the surgery. Because, again, you know, Dr. Hammond and I are using sizers, and uh, Dr. Bajaj, when you don't use sizers, you're predetermining the implant size before surgery just based on their preference and their goals, right? Correct. And so when you're in the operating room, then the, you're, you're accounting, at least in your planning, I'm sure you're accounting for using an implant that you know is a little bit smaller than the goal volume because I, I'm, I would think you'd want to overfill a little bit. Yes, I, that's, that's correct. Like I'll, in the discussion I have with the patient when we're discussing size, I explained to them, for example, with most saline implants, there's a range of 50 cc's, and we will discuss that this is the that we're going to get the 300 cc implant and probably fill to somewhere close to 325 to 350 or in that range, and that's decided before we before we go to the operating room. Right, but I think the important thing, Cherie, with regard to your question, is choosing the implant that's going to get the job done. And, and that's why I like to do it in the operating room. I know, Dr. Hammond, you mentioned you do the same thing. But using the sizers, it helps us gauge it live during surgery. But certainly with experience, we're all pretty good at guessing where we're going to end up. I want to get to something. Adding 25 cc's to an implant going from 325 to 350 can be a negligible change in the volume of the breast. But it can have a tremendous impact upon whether or not there are wrinkles. You know, we're, we're coming up on the end of the show. I want to get to one point before we have to go. Uh, combining with other procedures, you know, mastopexy augmentation in my hands is a very challenging and time-consuming procedure because I spend a lot of time tinkering and, and doing what, what's called tailor tacking where we put some temporary stitches in, take a look, refine it, and, and keep kind of sculpting the result before we finish the surgery. I don't tend to combine mastopexy augmentation with too many other procedures unless I think it's going to be a really straightforward lift. How do you guys feel about that? Oh, you know, you're exactly right. It requires a lot of effort to get it done. But we have done this in conjunction with, say, an abdominoplasty um, without too much trouble. It doesn't happen often, but uh, we have certainly gone in that direction. Yeah, I think it's a simple procedure. Uh, do you guys you have a mammogram before? Do you suggest doing mammograms? For over the age of 30. Absolutely, yeah. I'm just following wow. even even more more liberal than the uh, American Cancer Society uh, recommendations. But I think it's good to have something on film before you go for an operation. We're we're out of time, so I'm going to have to say goodbye to everybody and and thank you both, Dr. Hammond. It's been wonderful having you on the show. Thanks thank so much you. for your your experience and and your words here today. And Dr. Bajaj, thank you so much for joining us and being with us in the panel. You've both been wonderful guests. Love to have you back on future. Mm -hmm shows. Uh, this has been New Reflections. I'm Dr. Adam Rubenstein. I want to tell everybody, coming up in just a couple of weeks, a very big show. We're going to be talking about the lifestyle lift. Lifestyle lift. Is it uh, the fantastic short one-hour procedure that will get you back to the office in an hour after the procedure, or is it perhaps a little more than, than that? We're going to learn about that and learn about the truth about the lifestyle lift in just a couple of weeks. Join us back here live, 12 to 1 Eastern Time, on New Reflections. We hope you stayed informed and entertained today on New Reflections. Please join your host, Dr. Adam Rubenstein, again next Saturday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time. You can also email the doctor at info at dr-rubenstein.com or visit his website at www.dr-rubenstein.com. And don't forget to join us next Saturday for new reflections on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a beautiful weekend.